The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. So what on earth is the district court supposed to do on remand? Does it rule on the lawfulness of surveillance as required by 1806F? Or does it dismiss the claim as the government seeks to have it do under the state secrets privilege? Now, in most cases where the relevant agency isn't the Department of Justice, the government is going to resolve this conflict by, by picking which approach it wants to take. Is it going to submit a declaration from the head of the agency claiming state secrets? Or is it going to file an affidavit from the attorney general talking about national security harm? And in the civil lawsuit, it will pick the state secrets privilege every time because it can get the evidence and possibly even the whole lawsuit thrown out without any determination of the lawfulness of surveillance. So in practice, what the court, what the court was holding, even though it didn't say so, is that the state secrets privilege displaces 1806F. And, and that's just not how it's supposed to work when a statute comes into conflict with the common law. In the hierarchy of legal authorities, the statute should prevail. I'm Rukini Kurup, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 25th, 2022. Earlier this month, the Supreme Court issued rulings in two separate cases involving the state secrets privilege, United States v. Abu Zubaydah and FBI v. Fazaga. To talk about the court's decision and what it means for state secrets doctrine and executive power, we brought back to the podcast Liza Goitin, co-director of the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, and Bob Loeb, partner in Oric Harrington and Sutcliffe's Supreme Court and Appellate Litigation Practice, and former Acting Deputy Director of the Civil Division Appellate Staff at the Department of Justice. I first talked to them on the Lawfare podcast back in October, when we discussed the cases that were then before the court. Now that the court has issued its ruling, I brought them back to talk about the court's decision and what it means for the future of state secrets doctrine. It's the Lawfare podcast, March 25th, The Supreme Court Rules on State Secrets. So before we get into the court's ruling in the two cases and what it all means, I'd like to take a step back and first talk about the cases themselves. The court heard United States versus Abu Zubaydah in October and decided in that case a day before it did in FBI versus Fazaga. Bob, you've written about the Abu Zubaydah case for lawfare, among other places. Can you get us up to speed here? What was that case about and how does the issue of state secrets play a role in that case? Uh, sure. So the case... So background involves Abu Zubaydah, who is an alleged senior al-Qaeda official associate of bin Laden. And it's not disputed that he was captured in Pakistan in 2002 and that he was detained outside the United States at several black sites in foreign countries and then was ultimately moved to Guantanamo, where he remains today. So this case is one where Abu Zubaydah is trying to get Poland to prosecute uh, Polish officials for his mistreatment there. He he thinks that one of the black sites where he was kept was in Poland uh, and wants there to be uh, people to be held accountable, uh, those Polish officials to be accountable. So Poland asked for information from the U.S. government under a treaty, the Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty, and the U.S. government uh, denied that request. Now, here Abu Zubaydah is trying to seek similar information directly himself in the U.S. courts under a provision section 1782, uh, subsection A, which allows you to get discovery in U.S. courts for um, litigation in other countries. Um, and he sought information from two of the uh, individuals who were involved in the uh, enhanced interrogation program and who interrogated Abu Zubaydah and their treatment of him has, is most of that has been made public, um, in, in including these two individuals' involvement with it. And so 
he's trying to get information from them about how he was treated, but mostly, uh, as the government argued, what they want is confirmation that he was held in Poland. So the government stepped in and said, look, if you, the court, grant this request, you're basically confirming that he was held in Poland, because the only reason his interrogator's information would be uh, relevant is because this was, because this is a proceeding in Poland regarding holding Polish officials responsible. The only reason that would be relevant is if this, in fact, was in Poland. And the U.S. government says, look, where the black sites is still an official secret, um, and we have given our assurances to the countries that were involved that we went disclose what countries were assisting us and where those black sites were. And even though people have speculation and other people have said it's Poland, we are not officially confirming anything. And the, the, our partners expect us to keep this secret. And, and so they invoked the state secrets privilege, um, saying this action should be uh, denied. And so this went up to the district court and the Court of Appeals and ultimately um, into the Supreme Court that was argued in the fall. And there was a decision on, uh, on March 3rd where the court agreed with the uh, U.S. government that the state secrets privilege uh, was properly invoked. We'll talk about the opinion in a bit, but maybe if you can talk about the oral arguments themselves and what the lawyers for Zubeda and the government argued before the court and some of the interactions with the justices. Sure. So there was a lot of speculation about this case because the Supreme Court hadn't taken up a state secrets case in a long time. And the uh, underpinnings of the doctrine have always been debated. And now we have an originalist, textualist court. And this is a doctrine which the courts have pretty much made up. So it wasn't clear, you know, how this was going to um, come out. But it was clear then from oral argument, at least to me, that the court was taking the state secrets doctrine as a given and that it was taking it very seriously and was going to hold that the material here was protected, at least a majority of the court was going to say it was protected from, from disclosure. So first at oral argument, the uh, U.S. government, uh, from the Solicitor General, Brian Fletcher, uh, argued uh, defending uh, the assertion. And, you know, and there was some skepticism at some point, you know, information is no, so known in the public can it really be held to be a secret still. And Justice Breyer pushed back on that and Justice Kagan pushed back on that. But ultimately, it seemed that it was just a question of, you know, how much deference the court would give to the government on, on this. And, and ultimately, you have the head of the CIA under one administration and then continuing under the current administration, Biden administration, saying this remains to be a, a secret, right? And that Poland and the other, you know, or whatever other country it is involved, that they expect us to maintain our um, our promises of, of, of secrecy. Now, the counsel for Abu Zubaydah, David Klein, he started his argument saying, look, we're not planning to ask these contractors who did the interrogations if their conduct took place in in Poland, we're just asking them what want to know what, what happened and the details of it. And so all this business about the location is, is just a red herring. But he got a lot of pushback from Justice Thomas and from Justice Barrett and Kagan uh, on that, saying, look, the only reason this is relevant is to a Polish proceeding is if it occurred in Poland. So don't try to pull the wool over our eyes. This is all about whether it occurred in Poland or not. Moreover, what happened with the interrogations, that's been mostly declassified and there's been great detail about that so there wasn't you know an overwhelming need for it in the views of a number of the of the justices the one you know surprise at argument was uh, justice gorsuch started with an inquiry uh, as to whether the government had waived the state secret privilege by releasing so much information on the subject of the conditions of confinement and the interrogation and I was, was the government just doing this to hide information about its torture, trying to protect itself improperly, you know, from its illegal conduct. And, and then sort of got on a tangent that they're preventing the, the, the lawyers from talking to Abu Zubaydah and getting information from Abu Zubaydah himself uh, about how the uh, interrogations were conducted. And that led to a, a letter being submitted afterwards by the Solicitor General in responding to some of the questions from Justice Gorsuch. Uh, confirming that, in fact, the counsel 
is, you know, have been given clearances and talk to Abu Zubaydah on a regular basis and that he can provide them information and that information can be made public as long as it gets goes through the existing screening mechanism that is set up through the, the military court down there um, and that they weren't trying to invoke state secrets here to prevent um, information regarding his treatment from being being withheld from the public. So, you know, from the argument itself, it seemed like the only ones who were really hostile to the government's position were Justice Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor. And Justice Gorsuch seemed to be sort of just misperceiving the lay of the land as far as um, the information that was available to counsel and the information that was available to the public regarding uh, regarding his treatment already being out there. If I could jump in just just on that point, I, I wouldn't say that what that Justice Gorsuch's questions on that those topics were a tangent or that he was misreading the lay of the land because, first of all, the issue of whether or not the government was actually trying to just cover up uh, evidence of torture is obviously relevant to whether the state secrets privilege is being properly invoked. The government itself, Department of Justice, has a policy saying that they cannot invoke the state secrets privilege in order to simply shield themselves from embarrassment. So, so that's a that's a relevant inquiry in, in the first place. But then the specific issue of whether uh, Zubaida would be able to somehow make his treatment public in some other way through his lawyers and through a written testimony that's quite relevant because, as it turns out in the opinion, several justices uh, held that the state secrets privilege should be respected in part because Zubaida did not have a great need for for the information. And one of the reasons, certainly, that Justices Thomas and Alito cited was the fact that he could have simply just explained publicly what his what his treatment was. And in order for that to be true, uh, he needs to be able to speak to his lawyers, yes, but he also uh, needs to be able to provide public written testimony. And it is far from clear that that will ever happen, that his testimony will ever see the light of day if, if he goes that route, because, of course, uh, the same government officials who interposed the state secrets privilege here uh, will be the ones who will be reviewing uh, his testimony to see whether it can be made public. So I, I think I think this was quite a relevant line of inquiry uh, and, and played a significant part in the opinions on both sides. Liza, let's turn to the other case now, FBI versus Fazaga. Before we get into the opinion in the Zubeda case, so the Supreme Court heard Fazaga in November. Tell us what that case was about and what the state secrets question was there. The question in that case is whether a provision of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act displaces the common law state secrets privilege to the extent that it requires courts to deal with state secrets in a different way than they might if they were proceeding under the common law. The lawsuit was brought by three Muslim Americans uh, who alleged that the FBI paid a confidential informant to conduct a covert surveillance program in Southern California known as Operation Flex uh, that gathered information about Muslims based solely on their religious identity. Those were the allegations. The government asserted the state secrets privilege over certain categories of information and uh, moved to dismiss some of the plaintiff's claims on that basis. The plaintiffs argued that dismissal under the state secrets privilege was improper because FISA establishes a different way to deal with purported state secrets, which is set forth in 50 U.S.C. 1806-F. And in particular, if the government asserts that the disclosure of materials relating to FISA surveillance would harm national security, the court must review the materials ex parte and in camera and must determine whether the surveillance was lawful. The government argued, among other things, that, that this provision of FISA did not apply to this type of civil lawsuit and this particular posture of the state secrets privilege, where the government sought to dismiss certain claims based on the privilege, that in essence, uh, it only applied essentially when the non-government party was seeking to suppress evidence, essentially, that the government wanted to introduce. Uh, the district court held that this provision of FISA only applied to, in terms of civil lawsuits, to challenges to FISA, not to civil lawsuits brought on other grounds. The Ninth Circuit reversed. It held that the plain terms of Section 1806F and the history and the purpose of FISA uh, require that the 1806F mechanism be used, be available in any case involving an attempt either to obtain or suppress FISA materials so that it, it would apply in this case. Interestingly, 
the Supreme Court opinion took an extremely different tack than I would have expected from the oral argument. And instead of resolving the question of whether Section 1806F applied in this case, the court just assumed that it did apply. But then it ruled that Section 1806F and the state secrets privilege address entirely different things and therefore are, you know, mutually can coexist and one does not displace the other, uh, which, you know, I'm sure we'll get to this in the discussion, is a really, really weird decision and uh, makes extremely little sense. So the, the court held that the 1806F does not displace the state secrets privilege. What flows from that, frankly, is a little bit confusing in this context, but that was the ruling. And Liza, what arguments did both sides make before the Supreme Court and how the the justices seemed to respond to those arguments during oral argument? Yeah, I mean, the arguments were very much focused on the correct interpretation of 1806F and whether that provision of FISA actually applies to this lawsuit. What is the scope of that provision of 1806F, which ultimately was not the question that the court addressed? Uh, and, you, you know, there were arguments based on the text. Th- those arguments seemed to go pretty strongly in the plaintiff's favor. Uh, but there were other arguments based on uh, structure. There were some structural arguments that the plaintiffs made, some structural arguments that the government made. You know, different justices tipped their hands in terms of, of what they thought was stronger. Then at some point, given the admitted difficulty of the, some of these questions of interpretation over 1806F, there seemed to be a movement among some of the justices to just punt the issue entirely and instead send back to the Ninth Circuit to rule on the issue of uh, whether state secrets, whether the state secrets privilege actually even applies and whether if so, it would require dismissal of the claims. The theory being, hey, if the state secrets privilege doesn't even apply or can't result in dismissal, then maybe we don't need to, well, if it doesn't apply, maybe we don't need to resolve whether 1806F displaces it or not. And so for a minute, it seemed like they, that's the way they were going to rule. That's what I got out of the, or, the argument in any case. So fast forward to the beginning of March 2022, this month, uh, the court issued rulings in both of the cases. Bob, can you walk us through the majority opinion in Zubeda, uh, which you touched on a bit already? So that opinion written by Breyer for a very fractured court and some of the concurrences that we also saw. So it was fractured, but there's a, a pretty large, there's six justice majority who agreed in the dismissal of the uh, of the claims based on state secrets. You know, some just have different, slightly different approaches to the state secrets and how it works, but all of the six agreed um, that however the test was framed and whatever analytically it should be approached, that here um, the state secrets is properly invoked. So Justice Breyer's opinion is pretty straightforward. He uh, says that state secrets can be invoked as a privilege, doesn't have to decide what the background of it is or the basis of it is. Uh, if the government can show there's a reasonable likelihood of harm to national security, um, and that's without the court even looking at the information at all. And he, he stresses that the courts are ill-equipped and really should be reluctant to second-guess the executive when you have a sworn affidavit from the head of the here the CIA and from the Attorney General explaining that this is um, would likely harm national security. Uh, then it goes on to explain, you know, how much the court should probe the executive's reasoning. And they say, well, the court, of course, should consider whether there's countervailing interests. And they say, Justice Breyer says, where there's a, a showing of necessity from the party seeking the information and the disclosure, here off of Zubeda, that if there is a significant showing of necessity, then the scrutiny that the court should give at the next step uh, will be higher. But if a, if you can't make that showing of necessity, then it basically suggests that you know the case is over, or that the state secrets invocation is then correct. And how about the dissent written by Justice Gorsuch and joined by Justice Sotomayor? How did they push back on the majority's argument? So the dissent of, of Gorsuch and Sotomayor. Uh, push back and saying this approach the majority took uh, gives too much deference um, to the executive branch. And they uh, detail how in the past the state secrets privilege was invoked, where it was really just covering up uh, misdeeds by either the executive branch or a government contractor. 
they point to some of the key cases that are relied on uh, for the state secrets doctrine, saying it ultimately uh, they, those were not you know, properly invoked in those cases, and that a court should come with a, a strong degree of skepticism to the state secrets uh, privilege. And here they point to how much information is already out there in the public about the interrogations, how much already has been out there in the in the public suggesting that this has occurred in Poland, including a statement from the prior president, former president of Poland, uh, who's not speaking officially on behalf of Poland, but you know, is uh, they find his statement, you know, very probative evidence that it was Poland since he said so. You know, he starts out his opinion. There's a point where judges shouldn't be, you know, ignorant as to what we know as true citizens um, and shouldn't just allow the government to invoke state secrets when we know it's really, there's no basis for it. It's a factual matter. So as far as the six justices who were in favor of, of dismissal, and even Justice Kagan, who would just remand, they all were giving large degrees of deference to the invocation of state secrets as to the location of the um, black site here, even though there's a lot in the public domain suggesting that's in Poland. And, and, and giving deference to the assertion that there's, this is going to be harmful to the relations with other people in the intelligence community. And basically, Justice Gorsuch is almost saying, you know, applying a de novo, no deference or very little deference approach to that, especially where there's enough information in the public domain to be, you know, skeptical about it. How exactly all this would work under the views of Justice Gorsuch and Sotomayor isn't entirely clear, uh, but it's clear that in this particular case, with the amount of information that's already out there, they were highly skeptical that this was an appropriate uh, invocation. And they do, as Liza suggests, raise the flag here that the executive and the intelligence community is really just trying to keep information from the public about um, this, this chapter in U.S. history about the abuse of the detainees, and that that's not an appropriate invocation of the state secrets privilege to do so, and that the courts shouldn't be party to that. I would add that I think uh, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Sotomayor did basically articulate a way that the court should proceed in looking at state secrets privilege assertions that that uh, was similar to what Justice Breyer put forward in, in his opinion for the, well, for the major, majority or the plurality, depending on the part of the opinion. But, but essentially what Justice Gorsuch said is, you know, at the first stage, the government has to make an assertion that meets the straight face test. If it meets the straight face test, then we go, he didn't use those words, but that's, you know, it has to, it has to meet a certain minimal threshold of plausibility. Then we go to the necessity question. Does the non-government party really need the information? And that determines how much we will probe beyond that sort of surface level. But what just what Justice Gorsuch said, I wouldn't say that he showed no deference. I think what he said is we're not even past the straight face test here because we have the former president of Poland. We have the European Court of Human Rights concluding beyond a reasonable doubt that there was a black site in Poland. And, and you know, the U.S. government doesn't have a lock on the truth. There are other ways of establishing reality. Uh, and in a situation where no reasonable person could have any doubt on this question, then you know, then no foreign intelligence service service could possibly take the position that the United States had betrayed a confidence because there's no confidence left to betray. So, so I, I do think that Justice Gorsuch did not um, suggest that there should be no deference or that it should be a purely de novo review. But I think he and Justice Sotomayor felt in this case that even this really minimal uh, showing of plausibility uh, for the privilege just wasn't there. Yeah, so the um, six justices who voted for dismissal uh, and even Justice Kagan, really seven, uh, based on the on the question of location, all agreed that the showing by the government, the initial showing by the government of a you know reasonable likelihood of harm to national security was uh, was met. Now Justice Gorsuch, in his opinion, comes back and says, "Well, all they did was just say that in their declaration. They said, look, we've told these other countries um, uh, and, and their intelligence communities that we would keep the location secret, and they haven't." agreed to it being disclosed, and we're going to keep our promise, and breaking that promise uh, would cause harm to national security because they won't trust us going forward. So seven justices said, that's good enough for us. And Justice Gorsuch says, that's just a, their say-so. I mean, they're just saying that. Who's to show and say that's actually true? And it's not clear how a court would actually make that assessment 
you know, you can make your independent assessment. It's like, well, there's so much information out there. It's not plausible that uh, this other country's intelligence community or the, or the leadership of that country actually cares. And now we have the official U.S. government saying they still do care and it would disrupt relations going forward. And I think what this opinion shows that you have a still a large majority of the court, which is not going to second guess the executive, even on, on those kinds of assessments, even if they seem to you and me and to Justice Gorsuch as being a little bit, you know, you're skeptical as to the, whether that's the reality. Ultimately, they viewed that's an area of relations between intelligence communities and, 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 and foreign governments. And um, you have two different administrations coming in and telling us it's true. Who are we to second guess them about that? Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I would have liked to see an additional point raised in the dissent. It's one thing to say that in general we want foreign intelligence services to cooperate with U.S. intelligence services. It's a very different matter to say that we want foreign intelligence services to assist U.S. intelligence services in committing war crimes. <laughs> I don't think that is in the national security of the United States. I'd be very comfortable with a rule that says foreign intelligence agencies in general can rely on the United States to, to keep their relationship confidential, assuming that it hasn't already been made public in a way that leaves no doubt, as in this case but that foreign intelligence services cannot rely on the confidentiality of agreements to commit torture. You know, something roughly analogous to the, to the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege. Yes, we want clients to be able to trust their attorneys, uh, but that ends at the point where clients are using their attorneys to commit a crime. This was not an argument that was advanced <laughs> in the case, but uh, I, I sort of wish that someone had made that point. I think that's a good point. I think another observation about the, the Supreme Court's opinion is that not only we have these seven justices showing this great deference to the executive on the um, state secret privilege being invoked, but you have Justices Thomas and Alito write a separate opinion being even more deferential, saying that in, unless the person seeking the information shows that strong necessity for the information at the outset, you know, it's over just because the, the government has invoked a privilege without any even inquiry into whether it's a reasonable likelihood of, uh, of harm to national security, they would just put the first step to be that it's on the person seeking information to show the strong necessity. And here, I think all the justices other than uh, the dissenters uh, found that there wasn't a showing of that strong necessity. So he would, Justices Alito and Thomas would end inquiry there. And Justice Kavanaugh and Barrett wrote a, a separate opinion, opinion written by Justice Kavanaugh also being even more deferential, I think, than Justice Breyer and how they would make an assessment about uh, about whether there is a reasonable possibility of uh, harm to national security and how you would weigh the interests of the parties seeking the information. Even though there's a strong dissent by Gorsuch, and it's clear that going forward, he has some skepticism of, of deference to the executive on some of these matters and on state secrets privilege, there still seems to be a very strong uh, like supermajority of the court, uh, which has an ongoing uh, both embracement of the state secrets privilege and an ongoing showing of just strong deference to the executive when it, when they say this is going to harm our relationship with another country or in their intelligence services, that they're just unwilling to dig much deeper on that, even though there's some language in the opinion here saying that, you know, once the other side shows a compelling need, then we do that. The overarching, I think, tenor of the opinion here is that, you know, courts really just aren't suitable for making those determinations. I, I would agree with that. 
But in that regard, I think uh, Justice Gorsuch's dissent uh, made a very important point that I think too few courts have recognized that all three branches of government have constitutional equities at stake when the executive branch asserts the state secrets privilege. The executive branch has the duty and the prerogative of protecting national security information. Congress has the duty and prerogative to authorize lawsuits. And the judiciary has the duty and prerogative to resolve cases and controversies. And so, uh, you know, Justice Gorsuch basically said, you know, when the executive branch uh, seeks to withhold evidence thanks to the powers it enjoys under Article 2, and these are his words, that claim must be carefully assessed against the competing powers, Articles 1 and 3, have vested in the Congress and the judiciary. And I would like to see, you know, more attention paid to those other constitutional interests, which simply weren't addressed by the other justices. Bob, as you mentioned a little earlier, after oral argument in this case and in response to questions from the justices, the Justice Department told the court that Zubeda could send a declaration to authorities in Poland that could include details about his torture by the CIA. How much did that matter to the court's ruling here? And to the extent that it did matter at all, should it have factored into the legal question about the proper bounds of state secrets? I think it it factored in because it sort of just answered the line of questions that Justice Gorsuch was making an argument, suggesting that the government here was trying to cover up, you know, what occurred during the enhanced interrogation slash you know, torture of Zubeda, and, and the assumptions that, that were being articulated by uh, Justice Gorsuch that they were somehow thwarting that information from getting out, and the fact that the government could diffuse that and show that. In fact, they do allow the lawyers to meet with him, and they, to the extent he has a statement, he can get that cleared, you know, through proper channels, like which is an ongoing process through the military commission and otherwise in the habeas cases, to be produced. So I think it's cited in the opinion a couple places, more in just sort of response to the concerns that were raised by Justice Gorsuch in argument to that what's going on here is not uh, a cover up of of the mistreatment of Zubeda, but in, instead very limited to trying to keep the promise to the foreign government and to its uh, intelligence community that um, that its cooperation would be remain a, an official secret until they, you know, otherwise uh, agreed to have it disclosed, which they, which according to the U.S. government, they haven't haven't done. So I don't think it was a driving force of the opinions here as much as it was just to take that issue off the table. I don't think it convinced Justice Kagan because she would still remand to the Ninth Circuit to, to, to see if we could still get more information about his treatment and get it sort of uh, separated from the question of where it occurred and that that information could still be um, disclosed and there could still be further interviews with the, um, the two contractors. But to short answer your question, I don't think it was a major you know, factor here. And I don't think it was it ended up being a major factor in in the, in the Gorsuch dissent uh, either, that it mostly took it off, that aspect of it off the table. Liza, any thoughts on that? I would agree that it probably wasn't as major a factor. I mean, Justices Thomas and Alito said that was that was it. That was the whole ballgame, essentially. So, But if you leave them aside, the other justice, and, and Justices Alito and Thomas had, had three distinct reasons why uh, Zubaida did not need this information, and 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 you know one of them was this that that he that he could have you know made sought to do public testimony on his own and didn't, and so that meant that it, it wasn't necessary. The, the other reasons were a little. I mean, one of them was pretty much pure xenophobia, which is that he there's no need to give testimony in a foreign trial. Essentially, no no plaintiff has it or no no party has a need to, to provide, you know, information to in, a, to in a foreign proceeding. Well, Congress has said otherwise, right? I mean, that's the statute at issue is Congress saying, yeah, people in this country can and, you know, should in certain circumstances make, make that evidence available. But anyway, I, looking at the at the other justices, yeah, it, it played a it probably did not play as much as a, a role as uh, their initial assessment of the credibility or the the, the viability of the government's state secrets claim in the first instance. You know, it, it was disheartening to see how willing some of the justices were to rely on this representation by the government that there was another way 
for Zubaida to, to make his treatment public through this process of, of getting his testimony cleared uh, internally. If you, there's a long record of the government not allowing Guantanamo detainees to speak publicly about their torture. That has been the norm. And that the, this process of internal review ha, has resulted in all of this information being suppressed. So the notion that, that, that somehow Zubaida's testimony is going to sail through this process in some way doesn't, does not make a lot of sense. So, Liza, I don't think it was only Zubaida's testimony that was going to serve that need. That I think the majority of the justices also all cited the fact that we have the same contractors that, that Zubaida is trying to interview here have already provided interviews in great detail about what they've done and the misdeeds that, that occurred, and that we have a lengthy congressional investigation and with volumes and volumes of details of hundreds of pages where we know details about the waterboarding and walling and sleep deprivation. So uh, there, there's been an extraordinary amount of what was previously held to be, you know, code word, top secret classified information has been declassified or about his treatment and treatment of a number of the other detainees of both you know, at the black sites, et cetera. Yeah, I agree. And that, that was a separate reason why the justices felt that, that Zubaida had not shown a strong necessity. There, one, of, one of the reasons was because he could offer testimony himself. As I said, I think it defies credulity to, to, to act as if that's a realistic uh, prospect. But, and then the other piece of it was that there's a lot of information out there publicly. Uh, Justice Gorsuch pointed out in his opinion that that is not actually the case for this very specific time period at issue between the end of 2002 and fall of 2003, that there's much less in the public record about that time period. And that's really the, the gap that, that this discovery was, was meant to fill. So while in general, I think that's true, I, I think the showing of need was somewhat greater, somewhat greater at least than, than the justices credited. So let's turn now to the ruling in Fazaga. Liza, the justices in that case weren't divided like they were in the Zubeda case. What did they say on the issue of that provision in FISA overriding the state secrets privilege? And what were your reactions to the ruling? You mentioned being surprised by which questions the court decided to answer and which ones they didn't. I thought the court's opinion in Fazaga was completely incoherent. <laughs> if the court had held that 1806F applies, you know, only in criminal cases or FISA challenges, and that the state secrets privilege applies in all other cases, I would have disagreed with that reading of the statute, but it, it would have at least made sense. Instead, the court assumed that 1806F applies in, in this case, applied in, in Fazaga, but held that it doesn't displace the state secrets privilege because the procedures for the two approaches are different. And therefore, I am quoting, nothing about the operation of, of that provision, 1806F, is at all compatible with the state secrets privilege. Well, yes, the procedures under 1806F are very different from the procedures under the state secrets privilege. That's why the plaintiffs argue that 1806F displaces the privilege rather than arguing that it codifies the privilege. If 1806F did nothing but restate exactly the procedures that apply when the government invokes the state secrets privilege, there would be nothing for the court to decide. The notion that because the procedures are different, the two approaches are not incompatible, is just head scratching. I mean, the more different they are, the less compatible they are. Remember that the question here is what happens when the government believes that disclosing certain information through litigation would harm national security. 1806F sets out one set of procedures that follow from this. The state secrets privilege sets out another. And these approaches aren't just different, they're conflicting, at least in this case. The, the former approach would require the court to examine the evidence in camera and rule on the lawfulness of the surveillance. While the state secrets approach would not require an in-camera examination and would not allow a ruling on the lawfulness of, of the surveillance. I mean, you can prove the incompatibility of these approaches with a simple thought experiment. Suppose you had a case in which the government sought to trigger both 1806F and the state secrets privilege at the same time. What procedures would the court follow exactly? And, and that's not actually, in this case, a hypothetical because the state secrets privilege is asserted by the head of the relevant agency, while 1806F is triggered by an affidavit from the attorney general saying that disclosure would harm national security. In this case, the agency is the FBI. So the state secrets privilege was invoked 
in an affidavit by the attorney general saying that disclosure would harm national security. So in other words, the attorney general's affidavit in this case both invokes the state secrets privilege and on its face triggers the procedures of H-06F. So what on earth is the district court supposed to do on remand? Does it rule on the lawfulness of surveillance as required by 1806F? Or does it dismiss the claim as the government seeks to have it do under the state secrets privilege? Now, in most cases where the relevant agency isn't the Department of Justice, the government is going to resolve this conflict by, by picking which approach it wants to take. Is it going to submit a declaration from the head of the agency claiming state secrets? Or is it going to file an affidavit from the attorney general talking about national security harm? And in a civil lawsuit, it will pick the state secrets privilege every time because it can get the evidence and possibly even the whole lawsuit thrown out without any determination of the lawfulness of surveillance. So in practice, what the court, what the court was holding, even though it didn't say so, is that the state secrets privilege displaces 1806F. And, and that's just not how it's supposed to work when a statute comes into conflict with the common law. In the hierarchy of legal authorities, the statute should prevail. So I just found the decision to, to be to be baffling. It was unanimous, which <laughs> makes it even more baffling. And yeah, that's where it left me. Bob, any reactions to the ruling here? Were you surprised at all by it? I, I guess surprised it was unanimous and surprised that, I mean, there were so many ways they could have tried to decide the case based on, sometimes the court tries to decide things on more limited grounds. You know, So here they could have decided it based on various ways to construe 1806 and there were certainly a lot of things, interesting things being debated at argument. And instead, the court went bigger. I mean, it basically, like Liza said, just punted on the meaning of 1806F, saying it doesn't matter because um, it doesn't displace the state secrets privilege. Basically, the court then just took this as an opportunity to say, not only do we have the state secrets privilege and that we're reaffirming it, but it's such an important doctrine. Um, of common law, meaning the courts, you know, made it up, whether it was, you know, read it into the Constitution or just as a matter of common law, that we should assume that it exists and that it applies unless Congress specifically in a clear statement abrogates it. So Congress, so they completely surprised me here by adopting in a, in a unanimous opinion, a clear statement rule saying that even when Congress is legislating on issues that look exactly like it speak to matters of national security and when to disclose information that are, is otherwise you know, protected, that we're not going to assume that the state service privilege doesn't apply on top of that. It kind of reminds me of, you know, the, they argued the EPA case the other day about the greenhouse gas and whether Congress gave authority to the EPA to regulate it as they did. And uh, one of the sides there was raising the so-called major questions doctrine, saying, look, if Congress is going to, you know, deal with that kind of major question, it needs to do so expressly. We, the court, can't just assume it was giving that power to the EPA, and the court was debating that. And so now looking at, after hearing that argument a couple weeks ago, you know, seeing this opinion here, well, they kind of adopted their own version of that here, that the state secrets doctrine is such a major question, right? Uh, it's such an important doctrine to executive power and privilege that you need a clear statement from Congress that they're actually displacing it and providing different rules. And instead we have now for 1806, this kind of set of parallel rules, which is not entirely clear how it all works together. So to me, what's surprising is how this decision, which I thought was going to be decided in the weeds when we talked back a few months ago, um, turned out to be an opportunity where the court unanimously embraced the state secrets privilege, reaffirmed it and adopted this broad state's clear statement principle. Uh, so that did take me by quite surprise. And the clear statement principle, I mean, I guess that makes sense in a situation, and clear statement principles apply in a situation where, you know, where, where you wouldn't, where you don't have to resolve some kind of direct conflict, right? So, so if, if these privileges could, or sorry, if 1806F and the state secrets privilege, if the procedures that are required under those two different approaches could kind of live harmoniously together, then yeah, sure. The fact that uh, you wouldn't assume without a clear statement that Congress meant to knock the state secrets privilege out of the picture. But when they actually conflict, which they may not do so in every case, but they certainly do here and they, they or, or 
at least they, they could, <laughs> let me put it that way. Um, and there are certainly other cases in which they, they would conflict. Then I don't think that the, the court does not have the luxury of saying, well, one doesn't displace the other because they conflict. So one has to displace the other. And at that point, the question is, which, which trumps a statute or the common law? And I think that's been answered in, 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 in the case law. So it's odd, just really odd. Liza, when we recorded our earlier podcast about these cases back in October, before the court decided in either of them, you thought that the court taking up the cases suggested that it would reverse the lower court rulings and, and defer to the executive on matters of state secrets, which is exactly what we saw happen. And you worried then that it might become easier for courts to defer to the state secrets privilege in general after these cases. After seeing how the court ruled in both the cases, do you still think that's the case? Or do you think that the rulings here are narrow enough to avoid that? I do think that they are narrow enough to avoid that. I mean, they certainly do reinforce significant deference to the executive branch and claims of national security. But I think that that deference was already the common practice. And then the, the question of what that deference looks like in this case, you, know, you have Justice Gorsuch saying, well, it doesn't pass the straight face test. And you have other justices saying, no, nah, it's plausible. I mean, that feels fact specific enough to this case that it doesn't necessarily have to sort of leak into other cases. I mean, you know, perhaps not surprisingly, the court managed to avoid answering uh, the two most important unresolved questions about the privilege you know, first, to what extent is the privilege rooted in the president's Article II authority, which they, they punted, in the, at least in the majority of opinions? And, and second, under what circumstances, if any, can invocation of the privilege result in the dismissal of a lawsuit? And, and they punted that. They basically punted that as well. Now, you know, the court in Zubaida did conclude uh, that the lawsuit should be dismissed, but it pointed to the very unusual circumstances of a proceeding under 28 U.S.C. 1782 where the entire lawsuit is a discovery request, so that if all of the evidence sought in discovery is privileged, there really is nothing left of the lawsuit. Now, I agree with Justice Kagan that the court should have remanded to give the plaintiff a chance to amend his discovery requests. Uh, but in any event, this was in theory closer to a Totten situation than a Reynolds one, namely a situation in which really the, the, the entirety of the lawsuit is about privileged information if you read it the way the majority did. Bob, same question for you. Has the court made it easier with these two rulings to defer to the executive on state secrets issues, or has it maintained status quo? I, I think it's made it easier. I think there was questions. They hadn't heard of state secrets cases in a long time. And you have all these originalists and textualists up there. And there was, a, you know, there could have been a group of justices who said, look, this is not in the Constitution, and where Congress speaks to these issues directly, we're not, you know, we the court should back off. You know, look what they do in the Bivens cases, look what they do in other areas where the courts have a common law doctrines, and they're very deferential, like, well, Congress has spoken to when there should be a cause of action, so we need to back off. And then here, just the opposite, they have now doubled down and re-embraced these common law privileges, and in uh, Fagaza, saying that if Congress wants to displace it, um, they need to do so, you know, expressly. Um, so it's just sort of like the opposite of the approach they've taken when you're trying to sue government officials, um, where you know, they read any tea leaves of what Congress is doing is displacing the common law cause of action created by the courts. Here they're saying, look, Congress needs to be expressly clear if it wants to displace the um, state secrets privilege. And then we have in the Abu Zubaydah case, them, you know, continuing to, to show strong deference to the executive, even when the information is really largely in the public domain already, and that they're just going to, especially when, when the government comes and says, this is going to harm our relationship with another country's intelligence service or the other, you know, other country's military, you know, they're just not going to feel capable of second guessing that even when the facts staring them right in the face might suggest that it's, it's a, a, you know, a, a paper thin explanation. So even though we have a few voices of Sotomayor and Gorsuch, that's only two out of out of nine. So I think this really does both, you know, reaffirms the state secret doctrine, reestablishes it, reentrenches it, and with the clear statement principle, you know, shows that it's it's you know it's probably stronger than ever. 
Yeah, Bob's right. I mean, I, I was really, my, my fear with these cases was that we were going to get a holding that the privilege is constitutionally based, therefore can't really be regulated in any way by, by Congress, and that we might get a ruling on the, on the appropriateness of uh, a ruling that sort of collapsed the Totten and Reynolds versions of the privilege in the way that the government has and some courts have been doing. That was my fear. I was grateful that that did not happen. And so that's that's really what I was responding to. But yeah, I mean, Bob's right that the, the deference calculus, the way that it played out in Zubaida, that's too much deference. Um, it is, I think, the first time that the Supreme Court has said that information that's in the public domain may nonetheless be protected by the state secrets privilege. And and, you know, that that uh, that can do a lot of mischief, that principle. And on the on the clear statement rule. I, yeah, I mean, I, I guess that's problematic. I, I, I guess I find the, the holding of Fazaga to be so bizarre that it's hard for me to imagine how it could be replicated in a different case with different circumstances. But yeah, I mean, Bob makes a really good point. I think that's a great place to end. Bob and Liza, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Hamza Shitu of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and look out for other podcasts, including The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. As always, thank you for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.